Let's open in prayer. Our gracious God, we live our lives in dependence upon you. Uh, Without you, we have nothing and we are nothing. With you, we are heirs of heaven and we have all that we could ever ask or imagine. And so as we draw near, we pray that you would be with us, that you would grant us uh, a sober spirit, humble hearts, uh, listening ears, and, and allow us to engage hard issues in a way that honors and glorifies you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, so a few weeks ago, you all, I think everybody here has been here, so we know where we're at. We've, we've been looking um, at a growing movement, uh, in large part coming out of Moscow, Idaho, uh, Christ Church, Pastor Doug Wilson, and uh, Like Minds. Uh, we spent um, one week doing an intro on the history. Uh, we spent two weeks on their vision for the future and society, and spent time there because this is what drives uh, so much of the movement. Uh, Winning the world over, transforming it. And and don't get me wrong, all Christians want to win the world over. Where Christians disagree on what what that looks like, what that means. Um, And so I'm begging for your patience for two more sessions. Uh, I know this has not been fun and it's uh, uh, it feels probably like it's been for, uh, a while. But wait, two more sessions. So that's going to be today. Um, we're going to look at marriage and how that is related to changing the world. And then we are going to take two weeks off while Pastor Isaac uh, re- returns to his session uh, or his series on covenant theology. We're taking two weeks off because he is going to be gone doing a wedding anyway on May 28th. So I told him, I can just finish my series when you're going to be out of town anyway, and that gives him four more Sundays to try to wrap up his series before we take our summer break. Uh, Good luck, Pastor Isaac. I don't know that he'll be able to do it, but I did try to give him as many weeks as I could. Um, So that's the plan. Now, uh, I mentioned a few weeks back what first attracted me to this movement 25 or so years ago, and 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 the reason was uh, they have, in very large part, put their finger on real problems, on real issues that I think are issues in much of the church today. Um, They have seen a refusal of men to be spiritual leaders in their families and in the church. And they have identified a tendency in women to use their emotions to rule the home and not submit. And they have seen an overarching embracing of egalitarianism in the church. Egalitarianism is the idea that there are distinct callings and roles for men and women in the home and in the church. And much of the church has come to embrace that and and reject God's clear teaching on men's and women's unique callings uh, in the church and in the home. And I wholeheartedly agree with many of those critiques, wholeheartedly. Um, But just because you've identified a problem doesn't mean you've identified the right solution. And in fact, there's often a danger and a tendency uh, in rejecting one thing to let that pendulum swing to an opposite extreme, which can be just as unhealthy. And um, that's where I want to be careful. And and so I think that's the case when it comes to some of the views that are are being promoted on marriage. 
than family and child raising. And so this week I want to look at marriage. Uh, and then in a few weeks, when I wrap things up, look at um, child raising, education, uh, parental uh, responsibilities, and uh, our expectations. Um, but much, most of the material that you'll come in contact with focuses singularly on the role of the man, the husband, the father. Uh, a call um, for men to be leaders. And let's be clear, the Bible calls men to be leaders. The Bible holds men to a higher accountability. And so we should as well. There is agreement there. There's no disagreement there. It's good for us to want our boys to grow up to be men. We need godly men in the church, hands down. And I think there's an appeal in this movement, especially to young men who were raised either with no father or with a poor example of a father and who are just looking uh, for a model to follow. What does it mean to be a man that honors God? And those are good desires, and I think, that, I think there's a need here. But my concern is that the vision become, is what that vision has become and what I think is an unhealthy emphasis on men. My concern is that uh, uh, it has moved to an unhealthy extreme, and, and that's what I'm going to try to unpack. But let me give you a few examples of what I mean by that extreme. Uh, David Shannon, uh, one of the hosts of Cross Politic, known as the Chocolate Knox, um, recently said this. He said, You might not understand, but this is how we win. Get you a wife, have at least three babies, baptize them, teach them to love Jesus. This is the way. Covenant faithfulness over time to Christ breeds success. Fifth commandment. Um, Can you read that last line again? Sorry, bro. Covenant faithfulness over time to Christ breeds success. This is how we win. Future success depends upon men being obedient. Uh, Similarly, there's a podcast called The King's Hall, and its tagline is, Making Self-Ruled Men to Rule Well and Win the World. Again, there's that emphasis that if men will do what they're called to do, this is how we win. I don't think they're dismissing the importance of what Jesus has done at all, uh, that the victory is his, I think they're saying that to see that victory that he has won realized in time and space in this world, men need to lead. And there's a particular view of victory and success. And the means through which that is achieved or realized is men getting married and raising children. Uh, I listened to another podcast by a gentleman named Larson Hicks on husbands and their jobs. And it began fine. It was, it, the, the beginning part was helpful. He was critiquing men who seek to be lazy in their jobs. He was talking to some friends who were talking about their work environment and, and how there are people who literally try to uh, slow work down so that contracts can be extended and clients charged more money uh, over time. Um, 
That's theft. That's evil. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with his critique. That's, that is not honoring the Lord and how you work. But then partway through, he turned and said, husbands need to inspire their wives with their careers, with their jobs. He told men that their jobs, if they're not making a difference, if they're not subduing the earth, if their wives aren't inspired by, their, by the work they're doing, they need to quit and get a different job. Um, Pastor Wilson, uh, it was years ago, he wrote an article called uh, Husbandry in Credenda Agenda. And it was on how a husband should lead his wife and deal with uh, sin in her life. And the goal wasn't to address any sin in particular, but how do you deal with sin when it comes in your wife's life? So he says this, The symptoms can, of course, vary. The husband may be distressed over his wife's spending habits, television viewing habits, her weight, uh, rejection of his leadership, laziness in cleaning the house, lack of responsiveness to his sexual advances, whatever. And from there he goes on and gives five steps for dealing with the concern. Step one is to look at himself and check himself for any personal sins and failures on his part before addressing failures in his wife. That's good. Like, that's where we should all start. That's just log and spec. Matthew said, like, like check the log in your own eye before the spec. Good stuff. I, I'm, uh, I'm not saying I agree with his list of concerns that need to be addressed. But when we address sin, that's where we start. Check yourself first. Um, step two is where I get uncomfortable. He says, the husband as a public person should begin confessing the sinful state of his household before God, assuming full and complete responsibility for the way things are. By public person, he means the office of a husband. Um, Now, while that sounds humble, right, it sounds like the buck stops here type statement, The reality is that it's saying that the only possible reason sin could exist in the house is some failure on the husband's part. That's a lie. How do I know? Because the church has a perfect husband who has not failed at one point, and yet there is sin in his house. Charlie. When he says that the husband should take responsibility... Contextually, is he saying that that the fruit of the sin is his responsibility, or the addressing and correcting and bringing his fatherly loving rule to bear on the sin is his responsibility? He says full and complete responsibility. But but what does that mean? Does that mean in addressing it and letting it go on, or does that mean that this is here because of, of me? He didn't. There, like, are you separating that? Is there? Is it both? And what do you think he's saying? I'm asking. I don't know. I'm asking. You, you, he says, in every, in every, in any and every situation, it's his fault. So, it, it, is it his fault? That's what I'm asking. Is it his fault, or is it, is it his responsibility to address it as the head of the home? He says it's his fault. Can you read it again? Yeah. Uh, he should be confessing the sinful state of his household before God, assuming full and complete responsibility for the way things are. For the way things are. 
It's, it's not... If he's let it go for six months or whatever, he should you know, repent for letting it go. That it exists is the statement. Um, a husband can't sanctify his wife. There are things that are his fault and there are things that aren't. And we need to be careful there. Yes, he should do the absolute best job he can. But he could do everything perfectly and his wife would still be a sinner. Now, let me be clear. No husband can do everything perfectly. I didn't mean that. But were that possible, his wife would still be a sinner. Um, the Bible makes it clear that the job of a leader is to warn, this is Ezekiel 3, warn of danger. But if that warning is rejected, the blood is not on his hands. This is what Paul is referencing in Acts 20 when he says, my hands are clean of your blood because I have warned you. If you reject my warning... That's on your head. Failure to warn is on his. There's that difference, and I want to be careful there. That's the biblical distinction. Yeah, Sarah. So there's, I think, aspects that, that are true in that that we have to be careful of, right? Like, first of all, I can't atone for my wife's sin, right? There's, there's no sense in which it can be imputed to me in that sense. Um, but there is a real sense in which, say, uh, a, a young man uh, finds a, a young woman that he really likes, and she's got $100,000 in, in college debt. And he says, I want to marry you, and I want to take my debt upon me. I'm going to take responsibility to pay off. There's, there's, there's a reflection of Christ's love in that, right? Taking her debt upon himself that I think is good, right? Um, but Jesus wasn't guilty for my sin. What he said was, Father, punish me for their sin. And that's a different reality, and Jesus wasn't repenting on the cross for letting the church get out of state, out of, out of whack, right? He wasn't repenting. He was, he was enduring. Yeah, Charlie. But we would say he who did not sin became sin. So he, even though he wasn't guilty, he became guilty. Yeah, and by became sin, it means he was. It was credited to his account. Right. He didn't become guilty of it. Right. He became willing to endure for it. So with that then, and Christ being the, the second Adam, with what you're talking about, how does, how does sort of the, uh, the creational household economy that God set up before the fall, when Eve sins, God comes to Adam and says, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems like God is showing the family there that, that, that as the man is the head, it has true authority. That it's an actual institution that he made that has real authority. Mm-hmm. That every authority has a head. Christ is the head of the church. Father is the head of the family. Right. So it's coming to the, the person that actually has true real responsibility, which means true and real uh, culpability. Yeah. Says, Adam, you messed up. Okay. I got your question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Time limits. Um, so two things. Yeah. 
he's holding Adam responsible for what Adam failed to do, which was to guard the garden. He was supposed to subdue the serpent, right? And he let the serpent come in, and he left his wife unprotected. He's responsible for that, not for her choice. I just wanted to divide the two. Okay, I think there are things husbands are responsible for that they need to repent for, but I'm not going to say any at all. In other words, Adam's not guilty for Eve's volition to sin. He's guilty for other things, and we just have to divide those. That's all I'm, I'm going. So we're going to move on. Step four gives the husband practical advice on instructing his wife. If, for example, the problem is one of poor housekeeping, he should require something very simple, i.e., that the dishes be done after every meal before anything else is done. Step five. Um, I'm sorry, I missed step three. I thought I had it. Okay, step three. The husband should make it clear what his expectations are for her in the future. He should also make it clear his complete unwillingness to step in and do for her what she neglected to do or tolerate a lapse into the old ways. So in other words, the answer can't be to do for... And so here's a break, you know... um, and I'll, I'll, remind me to come back to that when he tries to clarify what he meant, right? Um, that he can't, he refuses to do for her what she failed. So I'll, I'll come back to that. Then step six is, I mean, four is to give the practical advice, like do the dishes after dinner before we do anything else. Step five, uh, teach her the importance, and if she complies, increase the expectations, and if she doesn't, call the elders for a visit. Okay, several years later, this article comes back up, some controversy has started, and Wilson wrote a follow-up article in which he said that his language was clunky and misunderstood. He says this, The article concerned what a husband should do if a wife was living in an unruly and radically undisciplined way. He says, I did not have in mind any kind of normal life together, What do you do when your house is filthy and the wife insists on leaving soiled diapers all over the house? What do you do when a wife runs up $75,000 on the credit cards unbeknownst to her husband? What do you do when the children are left in a dangerous situation? He says he went back and he read it and he could have been more clear. And then he says... And that's been used and politicized against me by feminists and things like that. Let me, let me read again the sins he mentioned in the original. Spending habits with no qualification about $75,000. TV watching. Weight gain. Rejection of the husband's leadership. Laziness in cleaning the house. And lack of responsiveness to his sexual advances. Let me be clear, husbands. If your wife is having a hard time getting the dishes done, your your session's counsel will not be that you should be completely unwilling to step in and do for her what she neglected to do or to tolerate any lapse into the old way. If you come to the session about your wife's weight gain, if you come to the session about her lack of responsiveness to your sexual advances, we're going to have a different kind of conversation. 
if you say, I will in no way help you, and she and ran up $75,000 in debt, what you're saying is that's your responsibility. Tough love means not helping you out of it. You put those two things together, and that is not Jesus being imputed with our sins. I won't take your debt on me. That's not clunky language. That's sinful language. I don't know how else to put it. What does the Bible say about marriage? The Bible says it's a gift from God. It's a blessing. But I can think of not one passage in the Bible that says this is how we win. In fact, Paul specifically says that you're able to help Christ more if you're not married. 1 Corinthians 7. He says, because the one who's married is focused on his spouse. We need to be careful not to turn marriage into an idol. Uh, I, I spoke with one unmarried person who came out of Christ Church with the overwhelming feeling that there was absolutely no place for single people there. And that's heartbreaking. We never want our church to be like that. Uh, I've heard single men say that they feel like they are less of men because they aren't married. Directly after reading these things. The most perfect man who ever lived, the most manly man who ever lived, I'm not talking about John Wayne, Butchie, the most perfect manly man who ever lived was unmarried his entire earthly life. Paul says that being unmarried takes more strength. We've got to get away from the idea that to be a man, you have to be married. More to the point, I'm concerned with how leadership gets characterized. As I, as I read and I listen, the repeated line is that a husband never submits, always leads, always decides, and never yields. As, a, as Pastor Wilson says, a man conquers, colonizes, a woman surrenders, accepts. Instructions for men to lead has a context. The most famous passage about men leading and wives submitting is what? Love your wife as Christ loves Right. Passage? It's Ephesians 5. Right? The whole conversation about husbands and wives begins with this verse... Ephesians 5.21, which says, Therefore, be in submission to one another. And it says, in this way, wives love their husbands, husbands love their wives. That's an act of mutual submission. Both are called to submit. Husbands submit their comfort, their safety, and if necessary, their lives. That's what it looks like for a husband to submit in marriage. It's, it's a calling to surrender. It's a hard call, but it's a good call. Wives submit leadership. They submit the final verdict, the final decision. It's a call to surrender. It's a hard call. It's a good call. In other words, for a husband to lead means not always getting what he wants. And for a wife to follow means not always getting 
what she wants. For a husband to lead means not always getting what he wants. For a wife to follow means not always getting what she wants. What do those two things have in common? Sacrifice, surrender, submission, the cross. But more importantly, I think it's easy to miss what a good leader is, what it means to be a good leader. Uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, tried to figure that out when he took the throne. He sought counsel, which is what wise leaders do. Leaders don't automatically know what the right decision is simply because they're in charge. He got two kinds of counsel. The young men said, lead with a heavy hand, and the old men said, ease the burden. And he took the counsel of the young men, and he took leadership to mean a heavy hand. And God was irate, and God stripped him of his leadership. He took ten of the twelve tribes from him, and the only two he left, he left because of his promise to David, (laughs) right? Not because of any love for Rehoboam. In Malachi and 1 Peter, as we saw a few weeks ago, God tells heavy-handed husbands that he rejects their worship and he does not listen to their prayers. And over the years, I have dealt with a lot of heavy-handed husbands. The session has dealt with heavy-handed husbands. They exist in the church. And like kings, husbands need helpers in making good decisions. God has given husbands suitable helpers. Listening is not abdication. It's a godly response to God's gift. My wife is not sinless. She is not perfect, but she is one of the wisest people I know. And she has kept me from many stupid decisions. (laughs) It's one of the reasons God gave her to me, was to help me. I have to make sure I take my responsibility to lead seriously. She needs to take, make sure she takes her responsibility to follow. The following means giving godly counsel as well. Um, time is running short. I, I want to share in very, very specific terms some of the things that I'm concerned about in this movement. And, and I want to be super clear. Um, and... Um, so I'm going to try to get through these. We got, we got some time. One of the first dangers is something I warn people, couples about in premarital counseling. If I've done your marriage counseling, this is going to be familiar. And it's that we take, we have the tendency to turn what was specifically cursed in Genesis 3 and turn it into an idol in which we find our identity. God says, this is going to be your particular thorn in the side. And we have the tendency of saying, I'm going to bow and serve my thorn. Um, For men, what was cursed? Labor. Labor, right? Man was cursed to labor for his life by the sweat of his brow, never producing anything lasting and then returning to dust. But man in his rebellion tries to take his labor and... Uh, his job, his career, and either make something that lasts forever, 
a monument of some sort, or at least a legacy, being the best at it so that he's never forgotten. Uh, And so men can tend to seek their identities in their labors, their jobs. And that's, it's an idolatry. Uh, You can hear this sort of tendency in the literature coming out, this is men take dominion through their jobs. A man who collects trash or cleans toilets for a living so that he can put food on his family's table, and he does this to honor his Lord, is every bit as much someone who honors the Lord and is doing well as someone who runs a, a company or works in the White House. Um, there's nothing more special about one job than the other. It's how we do it that matters. And so I would never tell a faithful husband or father who's cleaning toilets and, and feeding his family that his wife is not inspired and he needs to quit. I would say, well done. The Lord is proud of you. For women, what was cursed was childbearing and their contentment to submit to their husbands. And so women tend to make an idol out of their family, finding their identity in their children. This is a temptation. We can just be honest. Uh, The temptation is to think that she will be the best mom ever, and she will pour herself into her kids, and they will be different than everybody else's. And that will be her legacy. That will be her immortality. And the same way as saying earlier, is turning marriage itself into an idol. And when women do, they will end up being at odds with their husbands if they see them contradicting that goal at all. And that will bring that second aspect of the curse in, where get away, get these are my kids, <laughs> right? And that will be tension. When, they're, when, they're, when that legacy is sought, that identity is sought in those children, which is, which is the temptation. We need to be careful that we're not promoting those idols. We want husbands. Don't miss what I'm saying. Do your job in a way to honor the Lord, but don't turn it into your legacy, identity. Women, raise your children... So as to honor the Lord, but don't seek your identity or your legacy in it. Um, it will become very unhealthy. Uh, another concern, I'm going through these, I apologize for the speed, is birth control. Um, in Reforming Marriage, Pastor Wilson has a chapter towards the end where he seeks to address birth control and family planning. He doesn't come right out and say it's wrong. In fact, he says this. He says that if a family has like six kids and they're being stretched on time, energy, and the ability to afford a Christian education for their children, that they might put having children on pause or even stop. But elsewhere, he says this. More and more young couples are deciding to trust God in the area of family planning, ready to receive as many as God sends. What happens when you put those two things together, you say, well, somebody might say, well, he's not forbidding it. The other is saying, but if you really trust God, you'll take as many as he sends. And what's going to always happen when you say that? What's going to happen to the family who's struggling? Are we really trusting God? And then comes the guilt, and then comes the shame. 
when you tell people that if they really trust God, they'll take as many as he sends, you're shaming people who don't. And that comes dangerously close to binding consciences. Yeah, Charlie. Do you think that Pastor Wilson has had to minister to any family struggling to get pregnant? Is that what you think that he's telling them? Is that your point right now? Um, ha- Do I think that's what he's talking about? Yeah, I'm trying to get your point. You're saying that he's driving, like, he's implying a hard and fast rule that's not he, there. He, he's saying he's glad that more people trust God and will take as many as he sends. I, so when you put meat on it, what do you think his pastoral counsel is to people in his own congregation who are struggling to have kids? Do you think he's saying he's not, faith? He's not talking to people who are struggling. He's talking about people who are taking means to not have kids. Yeah, but you mentioned families that are struggling. I'm saying what do you think his words are to that? Struggling financially. Uh, I do think that I think I think this has super bad negative consequences for families who struggle, because they wonder why hasn't God blessed? What have I done wrong? Like you got to really minister to those families. I think that's a second aspect. But so far, all we've talked about is um, if if you really trust God, you will never. Put up any barriers to having more kids. So, what would our counsel be then to an impoverished woman that's taking birth control to not have kids because of money problems? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, it's going to be one of two things. It's like, oh, well, it might be, yeah, uh, this might not be the right time for you. Or the deacons might step in and say, we want to separate these things. Are you being cared for? Not simply so that you can or not, but are we caring for? And we're going to talk about this in the sermon today, so thanks for the lead-in. Would I'm sorry, what did you just accuse me of? The birth control? Is that what you're saying? Am I promoting abortive? No, I'm saying birth control is an early term of birth fashion. I'm saying, is that what we're saying? We would say you're, it's okay that you say it's not the right time, and we would make, we would make room for that? Is that... I really don't like the word abortive, Charlie. Um, I am opposed to all abortion. End statement. I'm asking for I, I, yeah, that's like, an yeah, question. end, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. It's recently come out that the birth control pill, hmm. which is obviously super common, mm-hmm. can cause really early miscarriages. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, but when you say, so we're supporting, whatever that, that was, no. So in your counsel, you said that you would say it sounds like it's not the right time. Mm-hmm. I'm asking about the implications for that, and the well, conversation was the participation with birth control. Yeah, yeah, but not all birth control is abortive. Period. Yeah. And, and like, absolutely. Um, when young couples come to us, me and Jen, talk, what, what methods, right? We have never been able to get a clear answer on whether or not the pill is abortive. Okay. We chose not to because of the fear that it might be. And we didn't ever want to dance with the possibility. Okay? Yeah, thank you. 
we never wanted to dance with that possibility, and I would never encourage somebody to do anything that they thought, okay? Yeah, yeah, it was an accusatory question. Okay, so no, we're not okay, right? I, I don't... Getting a straight answer on that is really tough and all that, right? So I, I don't, I'm not going to get into all the methodology, yeah. okay? But there are plenty of options that are not abortive, right? Okay, um, plenty. And, and so those are the decisions that like you have to figure that out and make a call with the scripture. That's very different from saying doing nothing because that doesn't trust God. That's what I'm focusing in on. But no, please, please don't misunderstand me. I am not okay. The session is not okay. Our denomination is not okay with abortive means. End statement, Mike. Paul, you're a visitor. Why am I letting you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just a question. In the original uh, thing that you read, it ends with this is how we win. I'm just curious if there's any, if you have any comment on you know, what does winning look like, right? I mean... Yeah, go back and listen to the last two weeks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this building. So, I, and I, I apologize. Like, I, I want to hit, there's one more area that really concerns me, and I want to hit it before I'm done. So, why don't you come over after church? We'll hang out and we'll talk. And I'll give you a thumbnail of the last two weeks. Okay. Katie. No, it's okay. It's okay. I, but I do, I have one more real issue that I really do want to address. Okay. So, you're fine. Um, I wonder if what he is trying to do is um, bring up the kind of the novel idea in our culture that it is trusting God to. So, yeah, let me say two things. First is absolutely that's what he's trying to do. Like, like if you read the whole chapter, it's like, it's this, our current culture is not really excited about kids and families, and that's a problem, okay? And I think he's got a valid point. But the second you start getting into what that mean, what it looks like to trust God, you have better be emphatically explicit, Um and I hear people do this a lot with birth control, right? You just got to trust God. But these same people get in, into the car and they put on a seatbelt. And it's like, well, don't you trust God? Like, if he wants you to die, you know. Like, just because we trust God doesn't mean we don't use means that he's given us. He tells us the sick need a doctor. It's not lacking faith to say, doctor, please help me get through this virus or whatever. Set my broken bone. And I don't think it's, it's lacking faith to say, what means has God given us to plan this out? I, 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 so on the one hand, I think absolutely um, our, our culture doesn't, is not in a, in a period where it's emphatically in love with the family. Hands down, and I agree. And let me be clear, I love kids. We had four of them, and I love all of them. Um, But here's my concern, and and, and this happens a lot. You you say, here's what he said. Well, I think what he meant. That's dangerous to lack clarity. I have seen families flourish well with seven kids, and I've seen families struggle with three. 
I have seen people with, have, grow their families larger than they knew how to handle because of counsel like this. And then everything goes off the rails and, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And the kids are suffering, the parents are suffering because they, they weren't able to say, how are we doing? What are we ready for? And maybe that's because they need to grow, but, but we want to keep the cart before, I'm sorry, the horse before the cart. <laughs> that sounded weird. Um, and I've seen women long for children and grieve that they can't have more. We just have to understand that, that everybody's quiver has a different size, holds a different number of arrows. And we need to be really careful binding people's consciences and other families and tell them how many quivers they need to fit in, how many arrows they need to fit in their quiver. We just need to be really careful to do that. Um, we need to not be putting those expectations on the family, but you know, I try to talk to every individual family. Talk, you know, we're trying to decide whether we have more kids. Okay, great. What's going into the decision making? And if it's a sense of obligation, I say stop. Do not have kids as a sense of obligation. Mom, Dad, why am I here? Because we felt guilty. No, that's not a good later conversation. Right? But if it's like, well, we're not going to be able to go to Hawaii. Great. Don't go to Hawaii. <laughs> right? Those are the concerns. We go have a different conversation. Everyone's individual. I do. Time's up. But I, I have to hit one more. Because this is super, 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 super important to me. And it relates to the always available mentality. The what? The always available mentality. And it comes in different forms. Sometimes it's quoting 1 Corinthians 7, 3, and 4. That the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the, hus- um, likewise the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Or sometimes the statement is made that if a wife um, ever tells her husband no, that she's driving him to pornography or she's driving him into the arms of another woman or something like that. And so young wives are sometimes told, never say no, always be available for one of those two reasons or maybe a third. Um, Let me be clear. Wives, you cannot drive your husband into adultery. Period. If your husband ever commits adultery... It is his fault and his fault alone to say that somehow needs not being met at home is a justification for adultery would mean that God was okay with single men to have adultery because they're not having any needs met. Okay, That is a lie from the pit of hell. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, you cannot drive somebody else to sin. Each one sins, James tells us, when his own lust carries him away. And let's be clear, lust isn't about um, context, it's about sin in the heart. Your context doesn't make you sin, your heart does. Um, In case I'm being vague. There are accounts of men who have told their wives that they don't have the right to say no. Trying to use the Bible to... Let me be clear. Your wife absolutely has the right to say no. That's not what 1 Corinthians 7 is addressing, this idea that on any occasion whatsoever, 
It's talking about intentional neglect or disinterest. It's going back to Exodus 21. Specifically, it's addressing men with more than one wife and the neglect of one, like you see with Jacob and Rachel and Leah and things like that. Let me be emphatically clear. I will personally help press charges against any husband who tells his wife she has no right to say no. I will drive her to the police station, I will help her write the charges, and I will be a witness in the court case. And I know four or five other men who will go with me. Yeah, Sarah. I don't know specifically him, so there's. let me go two directions with that. Again, I'm trying to say there's also a movement, right? There's this kind of rhetoric that gets put out. Um, So let me say a couple things and get there, and I know I'm going long, but please indulge me because I love you. God's harshest judgments are on Israel's leaders for failure to protect the vulnerable. And our session takes that seriously. Very seriously. If the reports, and this gets to your question, Sarah, if the reports are true about leadership at Christ Church telling women not to report these events, and I don't know, that's, that's hearsay. If they're true, they should be prosecuted as well. I don't know if it's true. There's plenty of reports. Um, if it is, that's all I'm going to say is if. If that can be proven in a court of law, that's not my job. What I will say is I have personally seen cases where women thinking that honoring God means never feeling free to say not tonight. If the husband ever says, hey, she's like, let's go. And over the years, like this is, this is the advantage, this is, this is the advantage of years. All sense of agency disappears. And she will eventually feel like she has no voice and no volition when it comes to intimacy. And it is not surprising then that many of these women, 10, 15 years later, start to manifest the very same symptoms women who have been raped manifest. And they say, why? That's never happened to me. And they try to figure it out and then eventually realize it's because you've acted like that not intentionally. I'm not trying to blame. That's not it. That's not. I'm not blaming. I'm saying this is, this is what I'm trying to save people from. Is when you give up, when you lose all sense of volition and agency, this is what happens. There are Christian marriages hanging on by a thread because they thought they were honoring God. The damage is real. No, I won't share names, but I know them. The last thing a husband who loves his wife like Christ loved the church would ever want for his wife is for her to enter the marriage bed under any sense of obligation or duress. A husband should beg his wife, please never, ever do that. I love you too much. I've gone long, and I thank you for your patience. I I really do. Um, I have one more thing I want to address. Like I said, I'll I'll, I'll do that on on the 28th. 
but I have these are the concerns I wanted to raise. Can I can I hit you afterwards? I just wanted to apologize for my miss my clumsy question. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you. And I, I don't mean to be defensive. I just don't want anyone to ever think I'm pr- promoting anything abortive. I, okay. Thank you. Absolutely. Appreciate that. Okay. Pastor Isaac will be back. You can all rejoice on the 14th and the 21st. And then when he's gone doing a wedding on the 28th, I'll, I'll do one more session and try to finish things up. So let's pray. Father, you are good. And you have indeed loved us more and better than we could ever hope for, ask, or imagine. May that love be reflected in our own marriages, from husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children, and children to parents. May it be reflected in our church. Father, forgive me when I speak poorly, when my emotions get away. Use my humble labors, I pray, to bring you glory and to Bring health into our families. Father, we lay these things at your feet. May you give the increase we ask in Christ's name. Amen.